0: From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. Viruses are supposed to be the ultimate equal opportunity offenders. They're just looking for a host, and they aren't supposed to discriminate. Why, then, do data indicate that the novel coronavirus is killing Black and Latino people in New York at twice the rate of white people? Why have Black people accounted for 72% of coronavirus fatalities in Chicago, though they comprise less than a third of the total population there? Today, we're talking about how inequities become magnified in a pandemic. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Nina Yamanis. Nina is a professor here in the School of International Service. Her research focuses on improving the health of underserved populations. Her current projects focus on adolescent girls' health in sub-Saharan Africa and the influence of community action on Latino immigrants' health in the Washington, D.C. area. She also conducted field research on the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone. Nina, thanks for joining Big World. Thank you, Kay, for having me. Also, thank you for joining us remotely, since we're still not able to be together in the studio. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. (laughs) Nina, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you were one of the people who wasn't surprised by many aspects of what we've all been experiencing as a result of the novel coronavirus. As a public health scholar, how foreseeable was a pandemic like this, at least in the abstract?
1: Well, for many years, we've we've seen uh, epidemics that have crossed national boundaries, um, and uh, even Anthony Fauci, who's now you know in the news all the time, about two years ago warned that we needed to be prepared for a pandemic. Um, I served during the Ebola time, and then before that, there was the SARS epidemic. Um, so many public health scholars, global health scholars, have been warning about a pandemic. Given Given that globalization has increased the speed at which viruses can travel around the world, it's it's completely foreseeable that, that something like this would happen.
0: Right. One thing that's been readily apparent is that even though everyone says a virus doesn't recognize national boundaries or race or wealth, where and how you live has a massive influence on how well you live during a pandemic and how likely your recovery is if you get sick and this isn't just anecdote. Uh, Nina, tell us, what are the social determinants of health and how do they normally impact people's healthcare experiences on a regular basis when we're not in a pandemic?
1: Yeah, um, so social determinants are things that are outside of individuals.
0: So they're the
1: political, social and economic forces that shape our health. And they can reflect relations between people, but also the systems that we interact with, be it the justice system, the education system, the economic system, and so on. Um, So I think there are two ways in which they really influence our health. They influence how people have access to basic resources. And those resources include knowledge, money, power, prestige, social connectedness, but also things like health and access and health insurance. Um, and that access can be influenced by things like whether or not we trust medical providers or whether or not health care providers discriminate against us or whether there are policies in place that prevent us from accessing health care, like the fact that undocumented immigrants can't, don't have access to health insurance in this country. The other is about exposure to risk and protective factors that influence our health. So things like stress and uh, unhealthy food products and so on. So people who live, for example, in food deserts don't have access to healthy food, and so they're more exposed to risk factors that might cause diabetes. And these social determinants can affect people systematically based on how the population treats people of different races, religions, socioeconomic status, gender, age, and so on.
0: Well, one thing that comes to mind for me is I know that I have read that even when you control for income, that African American women suffer much worse outcomes in pregnancy in the US. Yeah. Which would seem to have less to do with money and more to do with race. So, is that kind of what we're talking about as well?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we really can't explain that disparity between black and white women in terms of pregnancy outcomes and infant mortality. Anything biological. So there's no individual reason why a black woman should either die during pregnancy or have a higher risk of infant mortality. There's no biological reason. So it must be something in the, in the social environment that's causing those disparities. Um, and so things like access to health care, you know, how far you live from a healthcare provider, whether you trust that healthcare provider. Um, what your local hospital is like, what kind of resources you have, what kind of social support you have, whether you need to work throughout your pregnancy, multiple jobs. But it's also about mental health and chronic stress due to racism and systematic
0: discrimination that could potentially affect those unequal outcomes. So we know that even on a good day, even on a normal day, quote unquote, in this country, the social determinants of health play a role in 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 the real outcomes for real people. So in a time like this, how do the social determinants of health play a role in the spread and the impact of the novel coronavirus? So
1: we've seen that people who live in the most impoverished, crowded, and racially and economically disadvantaged counties across the U.S. are experiencing higher rates of COVID-19 infection. First of all, they're, they're likely to get the virus more, um, and we've seen that in multiple studies, including the one that you mentioned in Chicago, um, but also a recent paper by Nancy Krieger, a social epidemiologist at Harvard, also showed that those people who lived in mo- the most impoverished, crowded, and racially and economically polarized counties we're having higher rates of COVID-19 infection and death. So we can see the disparity in the death rates themselves and the infection rates themselves, but we can also see the disparity in the extent to which people can prevent themselves from getting COVID-19. So those who live in um, worse economic conditions, who live in more crowded conditions, or who have to go to work because they're essential workers are less able to protect either themselves or their families from COVID 19.
0: Right. I know we've all been seeing the, the coverage and kind of confronting for the first time what essential means in our society and the idea that it would be sort of unthinkable that we wouldn't have access to grocery stores and we wouldn't have access to kind of whatever food we want to eat whenever we want it. But then when the question becomes, who has to be there, uh, you, seeing everybody come in, who's coming in to buy stuff, not knowing if someone's infected, putting their their health and their possibly their life at risk, has really brought a lot of these income inequality uh, issues to the forefront. I think for for a lot of people who never never considered it before, maybe. Yeah, I think I, someone uh, in from Chicago, I think, put it really well, which is that.
1: You know, in this time of crisis, we are all depending on people who have suffered systematically from health disparities to step up and help the rest of us stay safe. How do we reconcile that? The fact that people who are essential workers already have higher rates of health problems and are suffering economically and so on. And yet we're all relying on them for our own families to stay safe. So what can we do as a society to really help them stay safe is the question. And that, I think you know, gets into how we have historically dealt with populations that are vulnerable in our country and social determinants and how we're going to go forward dealing with it. So the fact that people can't be protected at poultry plants, you know, from each other, I mean, that's that's a major problem, not only for them, but also for us, because we're relying on them to deliver poultry to our to our homes at this time when we can't go out or, you know, people at grocery stores and and how they're having to show up day in and day out and that we need them to be there. You know, how are we protecting them, giving them face shields or allowing them to take paid sick leave? Like these are all things that they need in order to stay healthy and we need them to stay healthy.
0: Nina, we talked a little bit specifically about how some cities have seen different outcomes, New York and Chicago specifically. In the U.S. more broadly, have the effects of COVID-19 been experienced differently by different populations? And if so, uh, how? Yes. Well, as you mentioned, blacks have been dying
1: at a higher rate than whites. Um, And unfortunately we don't have great data across the U S on this. Um, So many States have not reported race as a a factor in, in terms of how many people are getting tested and how many people are dying. Um so we're relying on some specific states and counties that have reported this information but the more we can see it reported the more we can investigate it. Um there's been a call by several public health experts to collect data on race and age and and geographic location. But if you take the case of Chicago where we see that black Chicagoans are dying at a rate nearly six times greater than white Chicagoans. While we also see that some of the hardest hit communities in Chicago are, are the south and west sides, and those communities have struggled historically with unemployment and healthcare access. Residents there have higher rates of diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and high blood pressure, and those chronic conditions make the coronavirus even more deadly. So you can imagine these communities where when the coronavirus enters, they're already entering a place where the virus might have a higher likelihood of resulting in death. Black communities have been especially hit hard, but also Latino communities. We know that, you know, in terms of undocumented Latinos, uh, they were left out of the stimulus plan from the government. Many of them, we have about 7 million undocumented In this country, who lack access to health insurance, they lack access to employment benefits or paid sick leave. So, at a time when they may be sick, they can't take time off work because they have to pay their rent and feed their families because they have no other source of money for for those, for feeding their families and paying their rents. And I've heard just anecdotally here and in the local D.C. area, we have Latinx communities who are significantly impacted by the virus places where everyone is sick, yet they're struggling to meet their daily needs. And they also may experience medical mistrust because the Trump administration has targeted immigrants and instituted the public charge rule, which means that that any access of public services will be counted against them in immigration proceedings. So you have many undocumented immigrants and other underdocumented immigrants who now fear accessing healthcare, although they have feared it before. So it's not anything <laughs> super new. Um, it just has made it worse.
0: Nina Yamanas, it's time to take five. And this is when you get to wave a wand and remake the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. So what five policies would you institute to improve health equity in the U.S.? Well, first of all, I'd like to see access to equitable
1: health care, including mental health care. And this means health insurance, good health systems, quality health systems. So if everyone could have access to the same health insurance and and good quality health systems, I think that would be amazing. The second thing I think is related to social determinants, which is equal, fair and desegregated housing. So we know that so much of where we work and live is related to how we experience health. If people are able to live in environments where they can access good food, where they can go on walks, where they can be outside without fear of violence, it would go a long way towards improving health. The third thing is to legalize immigration. We have 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. They do essential work in our country, like work in agriculture, provide Childcare care for our children, and, and their health, as we've seen in the COVID-19 pandemic, is related to the health of all of us. The next one is to reduce income inequality, um, which I think could be done in a number of ways. You know, some of the efforts towards increasing minimum wage. Income inequality is so related to health, um, and we have a long way to go in this country to achieving better income equality. And then the last one is to redress historical injustices that have propagated institutional and interpersonal racism. We see so many different ways in which our institutions have propagated racism and our criminal justice system, our education system, our economic system. We need to redress those inequalities and the historical roots of them by doing reparations, better and more equal policies for pay and for education. I would like to see us lifting up those that we have historically
0: repressed. Thank you. Nina, we've talked a lot about the novel coronavirus. I'm curious, as we talk about um, social determinants of health and, and outcomes of other pandemics, or epidemics have followed this pattern? We're thinking about SARS or um, H1N1 or, or even HIV-AIDS. Uh, how have these these trends of, of access and care followed or not followed the pattern with other pandemics?
1: Well, I think I'll speak about the pandemics I'm most familiar with, uh- Because SARS was pretty unique. It it only spread to a few countries. But Ebola, I think, is, you know, we really saw disparities in terms of country level disparities. You know, that the three countries that were the hardest hit during Ebola were some of the poorest countries in the world. Um, For example, Sierra Leone, where I was, had the highest infant and child mortality rate in the world. And so these were really weak health systems in terms of their ability to take care of, you know, normal everyday. Health outcomes, and so when Ebola hit, um, it really exposed the that weakness and and meant that it it lasted a much longer time um, than in a place that had a better health system to 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 contain it. For example, Nigeria was able to really sniff sniff out Ebola quickly, and they they also had a a public health works workforce that was trained in vaccinating for polio. Uh, Sierra Leone didn't have any of that; they had really no public health workforce to go and do all the contact tracing necessary. And then people were living in such um, poor conditions that they couldn't keep away from each other. So I saw people who were quarantined who were, you know, 15 people to a very, like a 10 foot or maybe 25 foot area. So I think, and, and with HIV, we also see that HIV affects those who are most vulnerable in society. So In the U.S., it affects gay and transgender, people who identify as gay and transgender. It affects Blacks and Latinos more than it affects whites. So we know, for example, that Blacks are much more likely to die of HIV than whites. And uh, that's in the order of seven to nine times more likely to die than whites. We've recently seen an uptick in HIV new cases among Latino men who have sex with men. And that's when HIV cases have been New cases have been decreasing among different age groups. We see an increase among Latinos. In Tanzania, where I work, and, and, and generally in sub-Saharan Africa, young girls are two to three times more likely to be infected with HIV than boys and and young men. And it's no coincidence that, you know, women are oppressed globally, but especially also in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa and they're vulnerable to gender power differentials in that context, and that makes them vulnerable to HIV.
0: Nina, Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, said, this virus is holding up a mirror to our society and reminding us of deep inequities in our country. Close quote. And again, I don't believe that any of this has been a surprise to public health experts like yourself, but I'm wondering, what would it look like in terms of public health policy, if the U.S. government truly tried to address disparities in healthcare access, what kind of policies could they or would they put in place that might actually get at the roots of some of these problems? Well, I think first healthcare access
1: for everyone, right, and um, health insurance for everyone. This is something that you know has been targeted by the Trump administration. They have. Some and some states have refused to expand uh, Medicare, Medicaid in their states, and the extent to which the Affordable Care Act has been under attack just shows that this has been really difficult. But I think if we were able to achieve health care for all, that would be one important first step in getting people access to the health that they need. And that would, and it's not just about access, it's about equity, right? So, and the kinds of health care that you have access to. So there's some, you know, there's a huge literature on healthcare quality, and the difference between access and quality. So you might have access to a rural hospital in your area, but you might not have access to the best cancer treatments, if you if you live in that area, or you, you might still have access to a hospital, but you might live in a food desert, you know, so the this brings us back to the social determinants of health that it's not just about having healthcare access. It's about the places that we live and work and how they impact our ability to take care of our health and access the kind of care that we need. So when we think about healthcare, we also have to think about things like equity in education, equity in employment, equity in access to food and water. Even some cities in this country, they don't have good access to water and we're asking people to wash their hands.
0: Nina, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about this on the provider side, because we've talked about how some of this institutionalized racism, it comes into play when the provider is making the decisions about whether or not to listen to a patient or to to believe them or to kind of take the extra five minutes to really understand what's happening. And there's a lot of unconscious as well as conscious bias that plays into that. So, how, from a overarching policy standpoint or educational standpoint, do you get at that piece with the healthcare providers themselves?
1: Well, I think implicit bias training within medical schools and training on the social determinants of health that that can be really important and one great first step. Um, and you know, providers often know these things up close, right? They might see patients um, who, are, who are struggling or, you know, let's say they have a patient who's diabetic and that patient is not doing well or not able to maintain their insulin or living in a f- food desert or something like that, not able to access food. You know, the provider sees that up close and personal and, and knows that that patient keeps coming back and not getting better. I think what I'd like for providers to do is to see how the broader context influences their patient outcomes. It's not just about those patients not listening. It's about what's happening at home, what kinds of challenges are being faced both socially and economically, and how does that impact people's ability to care for themselves. But I also think we're talking about many, many years of historical and systematic oppression and medical, it's led to medical mistrust on the part of populations of color. You know, you have very much still present in the minds of Black Americans are the Tuskegee syphilis study that led to deaths among Black men who were not treated for syphilis purposefully by the researchers. And for Latino immigrants, you know, you have very much in their minds the idea that they could be deported. And just the systematic racism that exists uh, in this country against Latinos or people being asked to speak English when they go to the doctor, being asked for a social security number are being asked to pay for a COVID-19 test which has been reported in some outlets. So these kinds of everyday microaggressions contribute to a sense of mistrust and fear on the part of populations of color in this country to access healthcare. We have to address underlying racism and institutional racism and interpersonal racism in order to enhance trust and improve health for populations of color in the US.
0: Nina Yamanas, thank you for joining Big World and helping us understand how your wallet and your race help determine how good your health is. It's been really informative to speak with you. Thank you. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or a review, it'll be as great as that movie you've been wanting to see popping up on Netflix. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Koteman. Until next time.